is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today we're going to talk about strategy and leadership and how they go hand to hand. Let me give a little bit of a background on this one. When I'm coaching people, many, many, many times someone has been told that they need to be more strategic in order to advance. And the question comes to me, I don't know how to do that. Or people will say, I know I need a strategy, but I don't have time to create one. Some don't even know where to start. And I believe that many are confused by what strategy versus what a goal really is. So the argument for today is that strategy and leadership go hand in hand, that they should be joined at the hip. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about. What does that look like? How do you do it? How do you know if you're doing it well? With me today is Michael Yusim. Michael is an incredibly prolific writer, has been at some fabulous research for a long time. He's professor of management and director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael has written dozens of books. So he's the author of The Leader's Checklist, The Leadership Moment, Executive Defense, Investor Capitalism, Leading Up, and The Go Point. And he's the co-author and or editor of Learning from Catastrophes, The India Way, Leadership Dispatches, Boards That Lead, Strategic Leaders Roadmap, and the co-author of Fortune Makers. And I actually haven't even finished the list. There's more to come. The most recent one is Mastering Strategic Catastrophic excuse me, Risk, how companies are coping with disruption. <clears throat> Michael also is the co-anchor of a weekly program called Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio Channel 111, which is Wharton's channel. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, Wanda, thank you, and really glad to be in conversation with you today. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. As I've said to you many times, I've followed your research for many years and really like some of the work that you've done. But I'm intrigued by this more recent argument. You say that it's strategy plus leadership. So what do you mean by that first? Well, Wanda, going back to your reference of just a minute or two back about being asked by people when uh, <laughs> they hear you say we've all got to become more strategic. Well, what exactly does that entail? So there's a huge challenge there of, call it, learning how to think strategically or how to develop a, a business strategy or a company strategy, whatever it may be. But uh, we argue in this uh, book, the Strategic Leaders Roadmap, that uh, if you've got a great strategy, when that's where everything begins, we've got to know where the heck we're going and how we're going to create some value in the world. It then is a matter of execution. How do you get people excited, aligned, uh, moving with you and not against you? And the latter requires uh, pretty much what we call leadership. That is, you've got to be somebody that people want to uh, work with. You've got to be uh, powerful in the way you communicate. So quick summary is strategy plus leadership. If we got leadership without strategy, we can get people to go, but we don't know where we're going. And if you've got strategy without leadership, we know where we're going, but we're not going to get there. So in a nutshell, there it is. 
So then for you is the leadership part is the whole business about getting people aligned behind what it is we're trying to accomplish, making it happen, moving through obstacles, wanting to follow, staying the course. It's all of that stuff that makes the difference in actually achieving your goals out of strategy. Yes. And a way to think about it is to or to put those all kind of into our act of thinking is to turn to an illustration or two where we have seen those factors or not. Okay. And for me, kind of an A case, just a a powerful, almost indelible case here, is the turnaround at one of Japan's great automakers, uh, Nissan. Many of your listeners no doubt drive a, a Nissan vehicle these days. And the reason so many people worldwide have made it one of the top five automakers, along with VW, uh, Toyota, General Motors, and so on, is because an, one person came into Nissan now quite some time ago when the company was about to go off a cliff. It had lost several billion dollars. Its models were not in keeping with current trends and what consumers wanted. They didn't have an SUV when the kind of world auto markets had moved in that direction. The incumbent chief executive at the time and his top team uh, appreciated all that and they had been trying to turn the company around they had a plan but the plan just was not genuinely pursued or applied or extended or executed and so as a kind of a hail mary move uh, nissan partnered with the french automaker renault renault put a lot of money several billion dollars into nissan to save it from going off the imminent cliff. But the deal that Renault set forward was, if we're going to do that, we want one of our top managers to come in and work with you on a turnaround strategy. And he's going to bring the leadership that seems to have been missing the last couple of years. So the uh, Renault, very top executive, originally from Brazil, but living in France with Renault, of course, Carlos Ghosn is his name. And he flew to Tokyo and went to the headquarters of Nissan, and he said, I'm really here, uh, not for Renault. I'm, I am here to help this company uh, not only have a plan, but execute a plan. It took him several years. It became known as the Nissan Revival Plan. Uh, plants were closed. Uh, products were spruced up. Quality was strengthened. And in the years after that, and he's been CEO uh, ever since this event some time ago when he took control. He's been there for a number of years. Uh, Nissan went from a company that was just about in the dustbin of history into one of the top five automakers now in the world. And why was that? Well, uh, many factors went into it, but the, the company had a strategy and then it had a leader that could cajole people, build great teams, convince investors to stay in the stock, um, work with consumers and what they wanted. And that's the essence of that formula to come back to it, uh, Wanda, of strategy plus leadership. It's interesting you say this because I was working one of the, with one of those top five automakers at the time of the Nissan starting the turnaround, actually just before that. And everybody would have said, Nissan is dead. Like, just scratch that one off. It's over. And part of the mantra in one of the top five was to be careful that we weren't next because there was this massive oversupply in the market. 
<clears throat> so let's talk for a minute about Carlos. What made him so unique? Or what did he do that was unique that others hadn't been able to do? Yeah. So one, it's a really great, great question because I think we best learn what we want to do, how we want to lead, how we want to build a team by watching people who've done it very well. So trying to understand what makes Carlos go and tick and what does he bring to the table that others didn't uh, is really, really important. There's lots of research that will give us five or six concepts that define great leadership, emotional intelligence, um, having a vision, persuasive communication, decisive decision-making. All those are really, really important, of course. Um, I think, though, the way we really capture the point in a way we can use it becomes indelible. We don't forget right. is to look at people, uh, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa among those, for what they've done, done that we then can borrow. So in turning to Carlos Ghosn, it's a really good question because it really, for me anyway, is a source of indelible ideas. And I think at, at root, or maybe um, at, um, uh, at, at a deeper level, he is a person, I'll tick off four or five qualities here, who is, take, uh, here's a summary, and one, one phrase, point number one, uh, take charge and lead change. Just simply take charge. Uh, if you're shy, if you're a shrinking violet, if you aren't ready to take a risk uh, with your own health and career, then you're probably not uh, in the right occupation there. And by health, I mean not, not physical health, but just if, uh, uh, long hours and all that sort of thing. Right. right. And then, so taking charge, jumping in, uh, putting yourself into the room, getting into the game, a lot of metaphors for the same point. And then um, a determination, a genuine, just intellectual, personal determination to turn the enterprise around or to make bring out a different product, or if you think about people running Uber these days or having to change how the company operates, then that's just enormously stressful and demanding. So I think, number one, it is this capacity to take charge and lead change. Number two, the ability to bring up ideas from the middle ranks and draw some of the best people from those ranks into working with you to take charge and lead change. Every organization I've worked for, and it sounds like you work for quite a few too, I've found, and see if this is your own experience, that often people in the middle ranks, or even maybe just a layer below you, have got some great ideas, they're determined to make a difference, but they just haven't been listened to. Carlos Ghosn was extremely good at reaching down skip level. He would talk with people a couple levels below. And then he found a number of kind of mid to senior level managers who were willing to work with him in kind of a layered leadership. So he was, uh, he was the big guy at the top. But then these um, mid-level mid managers, uh, they got on board. They loved what he was doing. They came with great enthusiasm and passion. So it's a matter, number two, of mobilizing a whole lot of other people that are willing to go down that same path with you. But let me stop in that. I can think of a couple more qualities, but I'll throw it back at you, Wanda. 
Yeah, that's interesting. This willingness to take charge and lead change. Um, I want to do two components of that. One is you didn't use the word, but I'm going to use the word stamina. That ability to work hard, work long hours, stay focused, be persistent, and having the strength, both of character and physical strength, to do that. So, I mean, it's a topic we don't talk about very much, but some of the jobs are incredibly demanding, especially when you're putting in um, long hours. The second thing I wanted to say, though, is this notion of take charge, because when you say the word to take charge, there's the view or vision that you have of a leader stepping in as a bit more authoritarian, telling people what to do. But I don't think that's what you meant. Totally right. So let me pick up on the first uh, phrase or term you use, which is stamina Mm -hmm. and persistence. There's a cluster of call them just personal capacities that we <clears throat> apply these words to, uh, uh, resilience, mm-hmm. probably right in there, grit, and mm-hmm. all these are personal capacities, very personal, that tell the rest of the world, if you are gritty, that you're going to stay with the task, whatever the pushback from it. That said, before we leave the point, I wanted to see if this sounds or corresponds to your own experience. It's a learned capacity. Some people just bring a natural degree of stamina, but for many people, it is learned, acquired, and strengthened. Why don't we come back to that in a few minutes on on how you build your, your resilience, yeah. your stamina. On taking charge, uh, great that you clarified my use of that phrase, because taking charge is it's about you and not about your your dominating presence, it is a, ma- it is a way of saying, um, let's say you're part of a team where it's, you're not the team leader, you're a team member, but taking charge means you focus on the problem that the enterprise or the hospital or the community group is facing, and you're not shy about committing to addressing and solving the darn problem. So good to clarify it because it's, in fact, it's almost the opposite of what we would take to be uh, an authoritarian leadership style. Uh, It's taking charge where you are working with a lot of other people, but it's that willingness to step forward, to pull your chair into the front of the table uh, or up to the table anyway, and uh, become a genuine contributor. Okay. So, you know, we see people who would like to see a problem solved, but they don't want their name tagged to it just in case it doesn't actually work. And this is the opposite. You're saying, I'm willing to step in. I'm willing to be held accountable to make sure this goes forward. I'm willing to pull my chair up to the table. I'm really to dig in and figure out how to solve this problem. Okay? Fabulous. Yes, and and here's maybe a brief illustration to bring the ideas to life. Uh, We profiled the individual who had been in business. He had been a business manager in Santiago, Chile, when those 33 miners were trapped about a half mile below the surface a couple years back. Mm -hmm. His name is Lawrence Goldborn, and he had been asked by the then newly elected president to come into the president's cabinet as the minister of mines. Mm -hmm. I think everybody knows Chile is a a country hugely dependent on mining. Copper is one of its major exports. And all kinds of minerals are rich in Chile. 
and there's some seven or 800 mining companies there. One of those called the San Jose Mine, which had a pretty deplorable record of safety to begin with, did have this uh, infamous cave-in, 33 mm-hmm. miners trapped half a mile below the surface. As the Minister of Mines, Lawrence Goldborn did not run mining, did not oversee rescues. He was a regulator. It's kind of like the, the securities market regulators, where they don't run a company, but they do make certain that publicly mm-hmm. traded companies uh, put out stock and information in a fair and even-handed way. So Lawrence Goldborn was in the cabinet of the president of Chile, got a message saying, big cave-in. He went to take a look, and pretty quickly he concluded that he had the resources and nobody else did to try to find the miners and then bring them to the surface. If you recall, and many people will, it took several months to do that. But in the vein of taking charge and leading, in this case, a rescue, Lawrence Goldborn, who admittedly, self-admittedly, did not know did not know a whole lot about the technical features of drilling a couple thousand feet below the surface, but he was not shy, given his position and the fact that the whole country of 17 million people was looking at him to effect a rescue. He formally was not in charge. Uh, it was a private mine, but he took charge. It took several months. Uh, enormous changes had to be effected under his leadership. But uh, many people will probably remember, they won't remember the date, but it was October 12 and 13 back in 2010 when the 33 miners came to the surface one by one. <laughs> and I run into many people who do recall seeing a, oh, yeah. one of those miners come to the surface. Yeah, I remember that vividly. I mean, I still have the images in my head because we followed that on news for a month, you know, watching these, wondering if they were ever going to get out. I had no idea, though, that the person who was leading that rescue was not a technical expert in mining, in rescue, in drilling, in any of that. And you raise a really important question then, because if he's not an expert in drilling, as he was not, or in rescue, and he was not, uh, who does he need to bring on to his team? or who do, What kind of expertise does he need? And, of course, he brought in a bunch of mining engineers, but uh, didn't limit his team to those. The children of the 33 miners, they simply came to the site and wouldn't go home, so he had to construct a school and hire a school principal. Mm-hmm. There were at one point, one to 2,400 reporters on site, so he had to have a director of communications, had to bring in uh, psychiatrists and physicians and social workers, and that once they found where the miners were located, they had a little air shaft going down to them. Yep. They had to keep the miners of uh, kind of <laughs> sane and, and fit yeah. for a couple of months. So Lawrence Goldborn who was not a social worker by background. Uh, He was actually a civil engineer and a a business manager. He appreciated that what taking charge and leading change meant is he had to bring people in who became part of a team. He had to infuse that team with energy and keep it all pulled together. And then he had to uh, remain, he decided, and I, I say this with great admiration for what he did. He said, I don't know a whole lot about the particular special areas here, 
but I want to be involved in all the major decisions. Explain them to me uh, in a way where I can decide among a couple options. So, Wanda, without belaboring the point, um, it is the point that you've just referenced, which is individuals, uh, they can't do it alone. They've got to bring in these other people. And that's all part of the formula, take charge and lead change. I love it. I love it. Well, what an incredible skill. And there's a lot to be learned about following either Carlos Ghosn, for that matter, or Lawrence Goldborn, I think is the right name yes. at the end of that. Incredible. Um, so let's go back to where we started. Oh, there's one thing I wanted to pick up on. You were talking about this whole notion of resilience and grit and determination and stamina. And you said it can be learned. I know resilience can be learned, but tell us about the, how you see all of those and what it is we do to learn them. Yes, let's take a step back, and I've got a hunch that um, people listening have, have thought about this a lot, uh, have thought about their own leadership development a lot, even if they haven't necessarily used the leadership word with a capital L. Uh, none of us, as far as I, as far as I know anyway, are, are born a leader, even though we've got a phrase, somebody's natural born as a leader. And thus, early on, parents, of course, and family and neighborhood, and then maybe high school teachers and coaches, and then later on, bosses and, coach and mentors along the way, all point to how leadership and, and the pieces, such as grittiness, are, are somehow acquired along the way. Many academics have struggled with that one, and it's really important to get an answer because, in my case, I'm at a teaching institution, if we're going to develop leadership, we need to know exactly how do you do that. And the academic research, but I bet your intuition says the same thing I know mine does, really gets it down to three separate avenues for learning to become a better leader and also for helping other people improve their own leadership style. Number one is to have become early on and I bet, Wanda, you're in this category, a kind of a lifelong student of leadership. Yeah. You, you read, you watch, you witness prime ministers and presidents come and go. Uh, history is just an incredible classroom. And by picking up books, one of my favorites is that of Jim Collins called Good to Great. Another first choice for me is a book by uh, Sheryl Sandberg, the number two person at Facebook, who wrote a book called lean in. So reading those books, watching just the, the stage around us is an avenue. It's not the strongest, though, of the three. In fact, it's the least strong, but still important. And by the way, I'd put your radio program uh, in the same category for the listeners as one more source of becoming a lifelong, self-directed student of leadership. Secondly, though, very important, very different, is over time, bringing kind of into your orbit people are willing to coach you or mentor you or give you feedback, parents and maybe athletic coaches and teachers, and then people in the workplace or your community who in a constructive way will say, look, you're, you're, you're um, you know, not as articulate, you're good, but you're not as clearly and persuasive and articulate as you should be. Then in one, number three, from research, and I think intuition says the same thing. The number three avenue is to recurrently get out of your comfort zone mm -hmm. and 
get into something you haven't done before, read your experience, do the after-action review, and learn by doing. And so if you are not as strategic in your thinking as you should be, finding a coach that can say, look, you're not thinking on this particular point outside of your box enough. Uh, but then on the last point, or maybe on the first avenue, picking up a couple of books or listening to people who are talking about competitive strategy is a good way to go. On the third avenue, though, which is learning who you are and how you can strengthen yourself by watching yourself, putting yourself in a position where you've got to think more strategically, maybe a more elevated responsibility, maybe a moment of greater uncertainty, whatever it is, and then giving yourself feedback as you watch yourself fail and succeed. Okay. So, and then I don't want to make this too long, but very briefly on these more deep-rooted, let's call them psychological features, such as confidence or optimism or uh, uh, extroversion, grittiness. Again, I think all, all of these can be strengthened through the means we've referenced. And then, of course, there are more specific workshops where you can really mm -hmm. work right. if you're an introvert on getting over that. So sorry right. to go on so long, but all of the above is part of the lifelong journey we're right. all on. Right. And I, you know, the, my experience certainly does bear that out. And as you know, some of the research will bear that out, that there is a bit of studying for yourself and watching other people and modeling after that. But it's also getting yourself in and trying it and still living with the failures, understanding what doesn't work, picking up, moving on, correcting, realizing that isn't a disaster at the end of the day. Okay. I want to come back to this whole notion of, you know, this strategy plus leadership. And you talk about there are six key steps. I think we've covered two of them. One is this notion of the um, t take charge and um, I forgot what you said, lead change. And then you were talking a little bit about finding people that you're that are in the middle of the organization that are going to step up and be part of your team. What's the third thing we have to do? Uh let me actually begin with a illustration just to help us anchor that, and then we'll, okay. we'll pull apart these uh, several pieces. One of my favorite uh, well, experiences that I witnessed is of a senior U.S. government official. She had the title of ambassador, and she ran a, a, a kind of an obscure part of the U.S. government um, that focuses on international trade. So the title is uh, the U.S. Uh, trade representative. Uh, the occupant of that position, Charlene Barshevsky, had been a lawyer in a private firm in Washington. And the president, U.S. president invited her to come into uh, this job. She technically was in the cabinet, so she was way up there in government. And she was tasked with the challenge of working out a deal between the U.S. and China to bring China into the World Trade Organization. We, it's been in for years now, but there was a time when China was not in, wanted badly in, and the U.S. was reluctant to endorse China's bid for admission because of a whole set of trade restrictions that China had imposed on the imports of U.S. products, British products or 
products and services from almost anywhere. Anyway, uh, Charlene Brzezewski negotiated a deal with the premier of China, arranged for him to fly to Washington to go into the office of then-President Bill Clinton to sign an historic agreement. Bill Clinton balked at the very last minute, in part because the trade agreement would have to go through the U.S. Congress, akin to Parliament, for approval. And uh, when he counted heads or counted the number of eyes, he concluded through others that he just didn't have the vote. So he, with a state visit by the Premier of China uh, happening, Bill said, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to sign Charlene Barshevsky then was left in the very kind of humiliating position almost of having arranged for this visit and looking like, looking like she had a deal all set to go for it to be suddenly undermined. And with that, she took a step back and said, and this is the uh, kind of <laughs> one of the first of these six items that you mentioned, she said, you know, I really got to think more strategically about what it's going to take to get this through. I, she said, have focused on working out a paper agreement with the Chinese government. What I did not focus on was members of Congress and would they be for or against this. So she turned around, began to meet with members of Congress. She turned around in a second way and decided that members of Congress might be persuaded somewhat by her, but even more forcefully by their major constituents. So she went out to Seattle, mm -hmm. talked with Boeing Aircraft, which is based there, Starbucks, the coffee maker, which is based there, Microsoft, the software company that is based there, <clears throat> and said, of course, the three, you three companies obviously went into China. We're not going to have that opportunity if your representatives in Washington don't vote for this trade agreement. So, of course, they in turn, at her urging, called up their representatives. And in time, uh, Charlene, uh, six months that it required, Charlene Barshevsky was able to secure the votes that Bill Clinton, the president, needed to bring China into the WTO. And, of course, the rest is history. So a first step here is to simply force yourself to kind of take a step back and think about the players, who's going to get in the way, who will react if you do X, what will be their Y response, a little bit like a chess game. Mm -hmm. And then just to get to a couple other of these six steps that we outline, she couldn't do it herself any more than Lawrence Goldborn could affect the rescue in Chile himself. And this then invokes or kind of brings up a phrase that comes out of the armed forces traditions in many countries. Uh, a, a soldier or a general in, in almost any army anywhere will refer to commander's intent. And the basic idea there, Wanda, is that you depend on a lot of other people to get the job done, but they don't know what the job is unless you can clearly and persuasively convey your intent. And then the second part of that is don't micromanage people below you who are trying to enact the intent. They know better what they're doing. So Charlene had a staff 
Uh, they had to get to a lot of people. She said, look, our intent is to have a vote within or to have a, a deal and then a vote within six months. And with them not trying to tell them what what member of um, Congress they should speak with or how they should make the argument, uh, with smart people around a layer or two below, they were able to collectively, with that strategic intent, get the job done. And then just to pick on, on one more of these six different kind of distinctive elements that we've identified from looking at people like Carlos Ghosn and others as being really critical. I've used the phrase already, but thinking of yourself as a leader with layers or layered leadership. So you are the leader if you're chief executive or prime minister or president of a company or a country, or maybe you're uh, the mayor of a local community. But leadership, in, in our view, is it's not an individual um, solo practitioner kind of sport. It's a team sport as well. And for that, remembering that leadership comes in layers. The people who directly work with you or report to you, they're going to lead in their own way, but they in turn, it's part of your intent that you're going to communicate to them, they in turn have to turn around and they've got people working with them who lead in their own smaller way. So think of it kind of cascading leadership down and layering it out. So let, let me stop on that and throw it back at you, Wanda. Okay, great. Well, so I'm going to repeat these. The three, so there's six steps in this, just to give you a heads up. The first three that we've been talking about right now is one is this force yourself to step back and to think about the different players that are involved. Who's going to support? Who's going to be against? Who's going to be object? What are they going to do? What are they going to say? How is that going to create opportunities and barriers as well? So force yourself to step back. And I think in many ways, that's what we mean in part by strategic. Then two is recognize that you get others to do the work, but you have to communicate very clearly what your intent is. So people understand where we're going, why we're going, what it means to get there. And then three is to recognize the layering effect. And that means presumably you have to equip people who work directly for you to be able to convey intentionality down for others as well. Yes. All right. Okay, so Michael, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about these last three steps that you find people really do in this strategic leaders roadmap. So Will with do. Michael, you seem today and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. 
Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Michael Yassim. Michael is um, a very titled professor of management and director of the Center of Leadership and Change Management at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Among all of his teaching responsibilities, he's also worked with managers and leaders literally around the world and is an extremely prolific writer from books like The Leadership's Checklist to Learning from Catastrophes to um, the one we've been talking about, which is the Strategic Leaders Roadmap. Quite a few and lots of other places as well. So we've just been talking about the six key steps that strategic plus leaders do together that make a difference in creating the kind of results we're looking for. And the first three of those have to do with um, being able to step back, force yourself to step back and recognize who else is going to be involved in this picture that you might have thought about, might not have thought about, and how they're going to react positively and negatively. Second is to be able to convey your intent in a way that other people understand and therefore know how to do the job that they do to achieve that intent. And number three is recognizing this whole notion of the cascading effect of leadership, that it's multiple layers and you've got to learn how to manage through those multiple layers. Not that you're directing people way below you, but that you're enabling people to manage below that. Okay, so those are three steps. Michael, there are three more. What are they? Well, let's take the next one and and pull it apart a little bit. I tend to use the phrase, you've got to decide deliberatively, decide deliberatively. And it's got a couple implicit meanings there. Uh, Number one is decide. Uh, The the enemy of... uh, doing a lot of things is, is sometimes referred to as analysis paralysis. Yeah. We all suffer from that a bit, fear of failure, uh, anxieties about getting, kind of having your legs pulled out from under you if you don't make the right decision. And there's a whole lore, I won't go into it, of or lore, lore is too weak. There's a, there are a set of steps, and we can come back to them, that will help you become more ready to decide. Now, that's the first half of the phrase, decide deliberatively. And on the deliberative part, so many academics and our intuition pretty consistently confirms what they have found, have revealed that uh, we, the human condition is pretty good about making rational decisions. Uh, sort of it's Adam Smith's idea that everybody's a rational decision maker and if everybody so behaves then the economy is lifted and all boats go up with the tide but uh, what are termed behavioral psychologists or behavioral economists going back now several decades have been compiling research it led to the nobel prize in economics going to one of the uh, 
psychologists who led this um, research agenda, they have concluded, and this is the good news, that are we, we are predictably, predictably rather suboptimal. And what, what that phrase means, it's the opposite of being deliberative. Uh, it means that we sometimes stop trying to get a lot of information and we just accept the academic's term would be we satisfy um, as we reach a decision. Or more, a little bit more psychological, I think, or kind of a peculiar psychological tendency, but we all indulge in it. I know I do. Um, if we've been at something for six or 12 months, we tend to get more optimistic about thinking we know what we're doing, what we're doing than we should be. So mm -hmm. urban firefighters, for example, have been found by research. They are good. It's a calling. It's public service in, in the best sense of the phrase. But researchers working with fire departments, and we've worked with several intensively, have found that uh, fairly new people into uniform as a urban firefighter, they tend to become, statistically speaking, a bit more optimistic than a veteran firefighter would like them to be. And I think, Wanda, you probably have been through that. I've been through that new job. I get excited. I think I'm pretty good. But I've had people take me aside and warn me about overconfidence. <laughs> so taking uh, a number now of those known tendencies, maybe the most important one for business or for people in the private sector, is that if we have a good year, a great quarter, results are fantastic, our stock is up, earnings are reported that are robust, the human tendency confirmed again and again by research is for people to become uh, confident, uh, happy, all that's to be applauded, but sometimes to become overconfident, for hubris to set in, mm -hmm. for a tendency to think that you're a problem solver, and thus the next problem you see, you can glide over it uh, less deeply than you had in the past. Mm -hmm. And just now to put this in a, in a more tangible envelope, so to speak, or a tangible illustration. This is, I think, exactly why the great automaker from Japan, Toyota, has for the last uh, 65 years had this slogan, continuous improvement. And it really is to warn people against this danger of hubris, of overconfidence, that research says happens, and we know intuitively does as well. And what the Toyota culture, in effect, is doing, now coming back to the phrase, decide deliberatively, the Toyota culture constructed, propagated, uh, reinforced, or stressed. It, it, what it's doing is to, back to strategy and leadership here, it is helping to, in all those different layers, encourage people to be methodical, to think deliberatively. Because if you're at the top of any pyramid, and one of the layers, they're leading, but they're not deciding deliberatively, they may be over-optimistic about what they're doing uh, to your net detriment in your leadership of the firm. So just to round that out, uh, that's the fourth of these six steps for me anyway, of helping people becoming, yourself included, of course, a more deliberative decision maker. Okay. 
That strikes me as two things. I like the way you say that deliberatively and this notion that we did it the first time, but we can't just repeat it. We have to go back and think and debate and so on. So one of the things that reminds me about, I believe the companies that are going to really, really succeed or the business units that really succeed are the ones that master the ability to listen to the disparate points of view, to deal with a conflict that comes from that. And so what you're saying and deciding deliberately, in effect, is saying, let's take the time to check and double check and hear and understand where the tensions, the disagreements, the odd facts are that we are to really look at and consider. Yes. And here, maybe to bring some of those points to kind of visibility here, we've chronicled a person named uh, Rich Rescorla. It's not a name that people would know, but he had been hired by a U.S. investment bank, uh, Morgan Stanley, as the chief of risk. So he was the chief risk officer. He didn't have that title, but that was uh, what he was responsible for. And Morgan Stanley occupied one of the two twin trade towers in New York City that were attacked on 9-11, of course, they had been the bank had been in the in one of those buildings for for many years, and a little bit lost to our memory. But some of your listeners may recall, eight years before 9/11, a yeah. truck had been driven into the ba- the underground parking garage, the basement of one of the towers. The truck had exploded. It was a terrorist attack of a much more modest scale compared to 9/11. Um, I, th- I think it was 11 people or a very Modest number compared to 9-11, mm-hmm. 11 people were killed, and, of course, anybody's death is, is terrible. Rich Vescorla said to himself, thinking now strategically, are we prepared if there is an explosion like that again, or maybe even a bigger one, a bigger kind of attack? And so <laughs> thinking strategically and then deciding deliberatively, he asked the top management of the firm to authorize an annual evacuation of all 4,000 plus employees in the, they were in the South Tower. Uh, The North Mm -hmm. was hit first, the South was hit second on 9-11. And you can imagine uh, 4,000 people evacuating, which meant no elevators. They had to walk down many, many stair Mm -hmm. flights to get Mm -hmm. out. They had to do this annually. And, of course, to many people, myself probably included, I'm thinking this is kind of a ridiculous waste of time, not to mention mm-hmm. just a physical imposition, as I walk down, say, 30 or 40 stories of stairs. That said, when the North Tower was hit a few minutes before 9 o'clock on 9-11, September 11th, 01, Rich Vescorla, of course, is uh, <laughs> totally focused. He's responsible for the 4,000 people, many of whom were at work by, by that time that morning, that fateful morning. So he called the chief executive, a guy named Phil Purcell, and said, here's what's happening. Purcell, I think, was not on site. Uh, and Purcell says, well, what do you think we should do? Rich Vescorlis said that the Port Authority, the, the government office that was responsible for overseeing the World Trade Center there was recommending people stay inside the buildings, mm-hmm. uh, including the South Tower, because it had not yet been hit. 
and debris from the North Tower was coming down into the streets, and it looked a lot safer inside than going outside. Richard Scorla said, uh, that's what the Port Authority is saying. In my strategic insight here, didn't use that term, but my thinking is, who knows what might still happen? We've got to guard against an even bigger or a subsequent calamity, and thus we've got to get out of this building. They only had a few minutes, but Phil Purcell said, let's go with it. Rich Frescorto gave the order, and 4,000 people began yeah. to quickly get out of the South Tower. It was hit about 15 or 20 minutes later, and by then, almost all the Morgan Stanley people, almost all, had managed to get out uh, to a safe zone. Rich Rascorla, he becomes one of the great heroes of the moment. He himself went back into the building uh, on the late side of this uh, small time window to make certain everybody was out. And when he was inside, along with a couple other of his security people, the South Tower then was hit by the second flight, and he perishes in the catastrophe that overtook the South Tower as well. So back to the kind of the framework here. Let's see, we need to know what our, our vision is, human safety number one. We've got to have a strategy for achieving that, which is getting people out in an expeditious way. Uh, heaven forbid if a building comes under some kind of an attack. And then we had to have leadership both at the top in the CEO, Phil Purcell, and then a couple layers down in the risk officer here, Rich Vascorla. And Rich Vascorla, uh, speaking of deliberative decision-making and thinking strategically, going back to that as well, at his own layer, in his own subordinate layer, led on behalf of the entire company, 4,000 people uh, to safety. And one I often think about that because if I, if I try to pick out something that's specific and let it stand by itself, uh, deliberative decision-making or strategic intent or have layers, none of those by themselves will, will do much for you. But if you think of it as a checklist, six different mm -hmm. items, uh, got to focus on all six. And if we got all six, to my way of thinking, it's a little bit like a pilot that goes through a pre-flight checklist. If they're taking off in a British flight from Heathrow there, uh, they do have to check flight plan and weight and fuel, right. um, anti-collision radar, hydraulics, and so on. And checking one of those is very important. But if it's only one, we got a problem. And right. that's why the strategic leader's roadmap, six different pieces to it, in, in our view, I wrote, it, I wrote this with a co-author, ought to be thought of as a, as a checklist. You've you got to have yep. everything, and they're all mission critical. Right. So we have, and it makes sense to me as a checklist, because you certainly could miss any one of these, and the rest of them you know, could look great, but the missing of the one could kind of really um, bring you down. All right, so we have this, number one is to force yourself to step back, think about who's involved. Um, a pro and con. Number two is to get your intent clear so that people know what it is they're doing and how they're doing their jobs. Number three is to recognize the layers, all the layers that are involved that help you do what you want to do. And number four is to decide deliberately. Okay, so what's number five and number six? So here's number five, 
and I don't have a better phrase for it than strategic fit. But to step back from that and just think about positions that you have filled, and I think we, as I say it, it's kind of obvious, we want people in positions who are not just the best athlete, but they bring a skill set that is a strategic fit with what the job requires of them. And that's not referencing necessarily technical skills so much as how they think and what they, they bring more broadly in this, this leadership terrain. So, for example, if a, to say the obvious here, if a company is going through a, uh, a restructuring, let's make a Carlos Ghosn at uh, Nissan, the, you want somebody in that top position who is going to be not only a great leader and strategic, but the particular leadership kind of qualities they bring to bear are what Nissan does then require. Mm-hmm. And just to give you one example out of a, out of a sport, uh, many of the listeners will recall, maybe even you, Wanda, I have to remember myself, that the first people to step uh, on the summit of Mount Everest Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay back in 1953, they had a leader of their expedition, a man named John Hunt. This was the British mm-hmm. Himalayan mountaineering expedition in 1953. And John Hunt was almost ex- an exemplar of the point I'm making here, which is he was a British Army officer at the time based in India. The Himalayas are in Nepal, they're north of India. And above all, he was a, a supply chain logistics specialist. And one thing that was critical for the mountaineering success back in 1953 was the invention, but really by the expedition, of this idea of a, a pyramid of people, supplies, base camp, camp one, camp two. And okay. it really required a strategic fit between what... Right what he right. had and what the job required. So, to, Michael, I'm going, then, to, I'm going to interrupt you here because we're about to run out of time, as in we okay. have seconds to go. I get that sense, the strategic fit. And just for the last, what's the sixth one? Just give me the title of it. So the uh, last one, let me just get the, uh, the particular phrase I used to capture it. I've got it right here in front of me. It is, well, it really is coming full circle to what we began with, which is you've got to combine strategy and leadership. One without right. the other won't get you anywhere or the wrong direction. Fabulous. So, Wanda, there I'm it is. I'm going to stop you right there because we are literally important. out of time. So, my guest today is Michael Yusim. The book we've been talking about is The Leader's Strategy Roadmap, I think is the correct title. Michael, thank you very much for being with us and join us next week for another episode with Steve Silberger on selling great ideas. All right, Wanda, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.